Something that I have rediscovered as the parent of a young child is that libraries are amazing. Their children's spaces and programming is clutch for parents who are looking for a way to occupy their kids and enrich their lives. And so this summer, our family's been participating in the Montgomery County Library Summer Reading Challenge. Now Sam is a couple of years away from being able to read independently, but we've spent a lot of time reading to him, and going to summer programs, and working our, ways, our way through different levels of the challenge. And kind of inspired by that, I want to extend my own mini summer reading challenge to you all. I want to challenge you to read the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. It's chapters 37 through 50, and it reads in a lot of ways kind of like a short story. These 13 chapters are a single elaborate narration. There's one little deviation in chapter 38 where we hear about Judah, who's one of Joseph's brothers, and Tamar, but for the most part, these chapters are really like a novella. And it really contrasts with the short, kind of episodic other stories in Genesis. And Joseph's story serves as this kind of bridge between the patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith that are found throughout the book of Genesis, and then the story of Exodus that's coming in the next chapter, or in the next book. So today, we get the beginning of the story, and next week we're going to hear one more portion of it, and then we move on to Exodus. But reading the story of Joseph as a whole, it really helps in understanding the bigger picture. Now, should you endeavor to undertake this summer reading challenge, I have two pieces of good news for you. It's relatively short. You can probably read it in an hour or less, 13 chapters. And Bible chapters, relatively short. And then there's lots of drama. I don't think you're going to be bored reading those chapters. And we get a sense of that drama right off the bat. There is 17-year-old Joseph out shepherding with his brothers. Joseph is one of 13 children, 12 brothers, one sister, who all have Jacob as their father. Now, Jacob is also known as Israel, so you'll hear that name interchanged. He has a name change after the supernatural wrestling match. And so Israel and Jacob, same person, and he's Joseph's father. But on the maternal side of the family, the siblings are birthed by four different mothers. And so, as you might suspect, there's a little bit of kind of jockeying for position among that family dynamic. And Joseph and his brother Benjamin, they are the sons of Rachel, who was Jacob's beloved and really favorite spouse. And favoritism in this family is rampant, and it's not great. So here's young Joseph out in the fields with some of his brothers, and he comes back basically in tattles on them. We don't really know what the bad report was, but he tells his dad that his brothers were up to no good in some form or fashion, and this doesn't go over well with the brothers. And to make things more interesting, Jacob has made it very clear that Joseph is his favorite. He's given him this nice long robe. He must say it, um, show it in the way he speaks to him and about him. So again, favoritism, this recurring theme in this family. Now, this part of the story gets jumped over in our passage today, but Joseph also has dreams. He has prophetic dreams, and we come to learn later he has a gift for interpreting dreams. 
But what he sees in his dreams does not go, well, go over well with his brothers because he predicts that one day all of his family is going to bow down to him. And Joseph is more than delighted to tell his family about this. But you can probably imagine how the rest of them felt. Here's the tattletale saying he's better than all of us yet again. And Jacob even rebukes his favorite son for this hubris that he seems to be showing. Well, the next time that the brothers are out shepherding the flocks and they see Joseph coming toward him, they're at this inflection point. Here he comes again. Another bad report back to dad. Is Joseph going to be rewarded again at our expense? And here's what verse 18 says. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. Roger Nam is a Hebrew Bible professor at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University, and he makes an interesting observation about this part of the story. They conspired to kill him. The Hebrew that is used here can also be translated as they caused deceit to themselves to kill him. They caused deceit to themselves. And so this is all happening around 1600 BCE, and in their world, kinship was everything. For brothers in a patrilineal society, you were bound to one another from cradle to grave. But the bonds of this relationship, their ability to see Joseph as their brother, let alone a fellow human, is clouded probably in part by their frustration, even their hatred of how their father favored Joseph, their envy, maybe even their fear of what these dreams are all about. What kind of future are they going to have with him around? How much more damage could he do to their reputation with their father? And so they deceive themselves into thinking that the only way to make things better is to get rid of him. In the end, rather than kill Joseph... They exchange their brother's life for 20 pieces of silver. They opt to protect their privilege and their status at the expense of their brother's life. And Roger Nam invites us to put on that perspective of the brothers and to think for a minute about the ways that we can cause deceit to ourselves. How do we deceive ourselves into thinking that Another life is less important than ours in order to protect our privilege, our status, our security in life. What makes us lose sight not only of the humanity of others, but of the imago Dei, the image of God that each person bears. There's a pretty striking juxtaposition in today's part of the story where the brothers sit down and have lunch right next to the pit where their brother is lying naked at the bottom. That's surely not how their relationship started, and it wasn't overnight that they got to the point where they were plotting how they could get the best price for their brother's body. Now, Joseph certainly didn't help matters in what comes across as kind of an obnoxious way of talking to and about his brothers, and their father Jacob didn't help by showing his favoritism, but we really see how relationships break down in violent and terrible ways when envy and fear collide, when they really fester unchecked and they chip away at our ability to see the holy in someone else, especially someone who irritates us, maybe someone who scares us. 
Someone whose presence, whose dreams might threaten to take away our seat at the table. Well, today's passage, it ends with Joseph on his way to Egypt. And there's no justice in sight. Next week, we're going to see what happens when those brothers meet again. A little bit of a spoiler alert, there are tears, there is forgiveness, there's a new beginning, but we're not there yet, and there's a lot that happens in between. And plus, even with forgiveness, this story doesn't have a neat and tidy ending, perhaps most notably because Joseph will help perpetuate and grow the system of slavery that he was once sold into, once he reaches a position of power in Egypt. The story of Joseph, it focuses on a family. We actually rarely hear from God, and God never speaks directly to Joseph in the biblical account, which is really a, a pretty strong contrast to the kinds of direct encounters that people like Abraham and Sarah and Noah had. Yet Joseph tries to keep God at the center. You might think of Peter on the boat looking at Jesus and stepping out in faith. Joseph tries to keep his focus and his trust in God's faithfulness. It doesn't make his life easy. These troublesome waters, they swirl around Joseph throughout. And it certainly doesn't mean that Joseph gets everything right. But I think this story gives us a glimpse at God's faithfulness despite our flaws and despite our messy families. And there's great hope in that. But there's also a reminder in this story that we have a responsibility. Just because God is sovereign and one day will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that doesn't mean that we can sit back and be absolved of our moral responsibility to live as God called us to live, to do, just, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. This is a story about how fear and jealousy can make us turn on one another, even the people we're closest to, it's a story about what we do with power, about how we show and withhold love. It's a story about you, and it's a story about me, as much as it is a story about a family that lived thousands of years ago. I really do encourage you to read the story. And if you do, I recommend using the New Revised Standard Version, which is the translation you hear most Sundays here at church and we use in the Episcopal Church. So start at chapter 37, and read to the end of the book, or just see how far you get. And next week, I'm going to be in the small parlor, starting at 9.30. And if you want to talk about some of what you read, or what came up for you, or questions you have, come join me. Have a cup of coffee. It's a messy, complicated story, and one that might surprise you how much it resonates. Happy summer reading. Amen. <laughs>